Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the Hemming Brainiac List Podcast. We are talking about Book 5, Chapter 1. But I must say, there was something I meant to say about two weeks ago, and it completely slipped my mind, and now I remember thinking, oh damn, I forgot to say that thing. And now two weeks later, it's just occurred to me again. Whoops, I forgot to say that thing. The thing is, thank you to Kristen, our newest Patreon supporter. Cheers for the uh, support, Kristen. Really appreciate it. Sorry it took me so long to getting around to saying that. For those of you who are interested in um, supporting the podcast, patreon.com slash the Hemingway list. I've just added the first and the only piece of official Hemingway list merch. You can only get it by being a Patreon on the Andre tier of Patreon subscriberness, and after three months on that tier, you will receive the only piece of Hemingway List merch available today. Not only will that happen, you will uh, have supported the podcast for three months, which is brilliant. Uh, but yeah, the the, uh, the merch is an official Hemingway List pen holder, which is very exciting. I tried to choose something that's relevant to us. I'm sure we're all very writerly people. So, yeah, an official Hemingway List pen holder if you subscribe to the Andre tier for three months. So go check it out, patreon.com slash the Hemingway List. Big thank you to all my Patreons who support the podcast, support the community and the the Reddit and everything, the upkeep of all that. Um, You know, I'm here every single day doing this, so I do appreciate the support. Enough about that. Let's read... Sorry, let's discuss uh, Book 5, Chapter 1. Ah, a classic will reading scene. That's what we seem to have had there. Swim said the mum of fish, he said some financial bookkeeping. Too long didn't read. The truth was that the console had left behind much more, a much more considerable fortune than anyone would have imagined. Apart from real estate, then the family fortune came to 750,000 marks current in around numbers. According to internet sources, in northern Germany, especially Hamburg and Lübeck, as well as in much of trade in the Baltic region, the customary unit of account was the mark valued at one-third of a rich thaler. A thaler was comparable to $1.40 US in 1850. Buddenbrook's working capital would have been about 12.6 million in today's US dollars. Not bad. The Buddenbrook's... Ah, sorry. That's it. There's a longer version, but I think we've read the TLDR version, and that's pretty good. 12.6 million in today's currency, in today's modern US dollars. Gives us all a, a good picture of just how wealthy the family was. Not ridiculously wealthy, but very wealthy. Techrific says, Man puts the will and the remaining estate in very neutral terms, but it's obvious that their prospects and opportunities have dwindled. Family has grown and subsequently many potential sources to spend money, but fewer that actually are working to create more income, incoming money. The tensions between the family members are only subtly hinted at, but never expressed fully in the text. I think we can safely assume this inheritance business will be a recurring theme for some time to come. 
Their business has shrunk, but their expenses have increased. The calculus is a simple one, and it's not going in the right direction for the family. Thomas and Marcus have a lot of work to do in order to turn this sinking ship around and head for the nearest safe port. Regarding the pace, I think man is heading somewhere, but he needs this background that we've been given. He's dedicated one-third of the book to reach this point. After all, it's a book spanning generations of a family history, so I guess no matter how he handles it, we would have issues with it. I do agree with those that have expressed dismay at some characters having perhaps too much of the spotlight. I guess so far Tony is the real protagonist here. The book started with her, so it makes sense that Man, for whatever reason, chose her to be the focal point for this early part of the book. Um, it's a funny one, though. I do feel like Tony's the main character, but I don't feel like we even know Tony that well. You know, we know her quite well, but if you compare being one-third through War and Peace and think about how well you know Natasha or Sonia or... Maya, or Helena, even, um, or Lisa, you know, any of the kind of young women that are sort of in that zone of character, I guess, you know, um, being married off, I mean to say, or uh, finding their way into sort of the aristocracy. Um... I feel like all those characters I mentioned, I have a better sense of who they are as a character than I do of Tony at this point in the book, which is strange because so much of the spotlight has been on Tony. Strange. I think it's strange. I just feel like the pacing of the book is, I don't know, slightly confusing. Um... Swims to the Mum Fishy says two things. The fortune is dwindling. There was around 900,000 in the family coffers when the book started, which has shrunk to 720 under Junior. Granted, it is now 750, but that's because of an infusion of 300,000 from the Kroger inheritance. The partnership will bring in another 1,200. An interesting fact I ran across is that the Napoleonic Wars were very lucrative, which is how Senior probably was able to expand the family coffers. Junior did not have that benefit, and neither will Thomas. Regarding background, apparently the book started out as a novella about a character we have yet to meet. It burgeoned to the family saga, Buddenbrooks, when man sought out background material. The book is a, Rom a Roman, a cliff as well as a family saga, as he based it heavily on family and friends from Lubeck, who were not very appreciative of the betrayals, lol. Jan Brunt says, ha, a bit too close to reality. Perhaps. Okie dokie. Um, excuse me while I find the chapter we're up to and then we'll continue reading. Happy Valentine's Day, by the way. To all my beautiful Valentine's listeners. Hope you had a romantic evening. Me and my partner just went out for a nice dinner. Uh, it was good. It was very good. It was Italian style. Had some pizza, had a slow-cooked lamb. Beautiful stuff. Anywho, here we go. Chapter 2. 
In the beginning of 1856, after eight years' absence, Christian Buttonbrook returned to the home of his father's. He arrived in the post coach from Hamburg, wearing a yellow suit with a pattern of large checks that had a distinctly exotic look. He brought the bill of a swordfish and a great sugar cane and received the embraces of his mother with a half-embarrassed, half-absent air. He wore the same air when, on the next afternoon after his arrival, the family went to the cemetery outside the castle gate to lay a wreath on the grave. They stood together on the snowy path in front of the large tablet, on which were the names of those resting there, surrounding the family arms cut in the stone. Before them was the upright marble cross that stood at the edge of the bare little churchyard grove. They were all there except Clothilde, who was at Thankless, nursing her ailing father. Tony laid the wreath on the tablet, where her father's name stood on the stone in fresh gold letters. Then, despite the snow, she knelt down by the grave to pray. Her black veil played about her, and her full skirt lay spread out in picturesque folds. God alone knew how much grief and religious emotion, and on the other hand, how much of a pretty woman's self-conscious pleasure there was in the bowed attitude. Thomas was not in the mood to think about it, but Christian looked sidewise at his sister, with a mixture of mockery and misgiving, as, as if to say, can you really carry that off? Shan't you feel silly when you get up? How uncomfortable. Tony caught this look as she rose, but she was not in the least put out. She tossed her head back, arranged her veil and skirt, and turned with dignified assurance to go, whereupon Christian was obviously relieved. The deceased consul's fanatical love of God and of a saviour, the saviour, had been an emotion foreign to his forebears, who never cherished other than the normal everyday sentiment proper to good citizens. The two living Buddenbrooks had in their turn their own idiosyncrasies. One of these appeared to be a nervous distaste for the expression of feeling. Thomas had certainly felt the death of his father with painful acuteness, much as his grandfather had felt the loss of his, but he could not sink on his knees by his grave. He had never, like his sister Tony, flung himself across the table sobbing like a child, and he shrank from hearing the heartbroken words in which Madame Grunlich, from roast to dessert, loved to celebrate the character and person of her dead father. Such outbursts he met with composed silence, or a reserved nod, and yet when nobody had mentioned or was thinking of the dead, it would be just then that his eyes would fill with slow tears, although his facial expression remained unchanged. He was different with Christian. He unfortunately did not succeed in preserving his composure at the naive and childish outpourings of his sister. He bent over his plate, turned his head away, and looked as though he wanted to sink through the floor, and several times he interrupted her with a slow, with a low, tormented, Good God, Tony! His large nose screwed into the countless tiny wrinkles. In fact, he showed disquiet and embarrassment whenever the conversation turned to the dead. It seemed as though he feared and avoided not only the indelicate expression of deep and solemn feeling, but even the feeling itself. No one had seen him shed a tear over the death of his father, and his long absence alone hardly explained this fact. A more remarkable thing, however, was that he took his sister Tony aside again and again to hear in vivid detail the events of that fatal afternoon, for Madame Grunlich had a gift of lively narration. 
He looked yellow, he asked for the fifth time. What was it? The girl shrieked when she came running into you. He looked quite yellow and died without saying another word. What did the girl say? What sort of sound was it he made? Then he would be silent, silent a long time, while his small deep-set eyes travelled around the room in thought. Horrible, he said suddenly, and a visible shudder ran over him as he got up. He would walk up and down with the same unquiet and brooding eyes. Madame Goodlich felt astonished to see that her brother, who, for some unknown reason, was so embarrassed when she bewailed her father aloud, liked to reproduce with a sort of dreadful relish the dying efforts to speak, which he had inquired about in detail of Lena, the maidservant. Christian had certainly not grown better looking. He was lean and pallid. The skin was stretched over his skull very tightly. His large nose with a distinct hump stuck out fleshless and sharp between his cheekbones and his hair was already noticeably scantier. His neck was too thin and long and his lean legs decidedly bowed. His London period seemed to have made a lasting impression upon him. In Valparaiso, too, he had mostly associated with Englishmen, and his whole appearance had something English about it, which somehow seemed rather appropriate. It was partly the comfortable cut and durable wool material of his clothing, the broad, solid elegance of his boots, his crotchety expression, and the way in which his red, blonde moustache drooped over his mouth. Even his hands had an English look. They were a dull, porous white, from the hot climate with round, clean, short-trimmed nails. Tell me, he said abruptly, do you know that feeling? It is hard to describe when you swallow something hard the wrong way and it hurts all the way down into your spine. His whole nose wrinkled as he spoke. Yes, said Tony, that's quite common. You take a drink of water. Oh, he said in a dissatisfied tone. No, I don't think we mean the same thing. And a restless look floated across his face. He was the first one in the house to shake off his mourning and reassume a natural attitude. He had not lost the art of imitating the deceased Marcellus Stengel, and he often spoke for hours in his voice at the table. He asked about the theatre, if there were a good company, and what they were giving. I don't know, said Tom, with a tone that was exaggeratedly indifferent, in order not to seem irritated. I haven't noticed lately. But Christian missed this altogether and went on to talk about the theatre. I'm too happy for words in the theatre. Even the word theatre makes me feel happy. I don't know whether any of you have that feeling. I could sit for hours and just look at the curtain. I feel as as I used to when I was a child and we went into the Christmas party here. Even the sound of the orchestra beforehand I would go, if only to hear that, that and nothing more. I like the love scenes best. Some of the heroines have such a fetching way of taking their lovers' heads between their hands. But the actors in London and Valparaiso, I have known a lot of actors. At first, I was very proud to get to, no to know them in ordinary life. In the theatre, I watched their every movement. It's fascinating. One of them says his last speech and turns around quietly and goes deliberately without the least embarrassment to the door, although he knows that the eyes of the whole audience are on his back. How can he do that? I used to be continually thinking about going behind the scenes, but now I am pretty much at home there, I must say. Imagine once in an operetta, it was in London, the curtain went up, and one evening when I was on the stage, I was talking with Mrs. 
Waterhouse, a very pretty girl. Suddenly there was the whole audience. Good Lord, I don't know how I got off the stage. Madame Gunlich was the only one who laughed to speak of in the circle around the table, but Christian went on, his eyes wandering back and forth. He talked about English Café Chantal, singers about an actress who came on in powdered wig and knocked with a long cane on the ground and sang, sang a song called That's Maria. Maria, you know Maria is the most scandalous of the lot when somebody does something perfectly shocking. Why, that's Maria, the bad lot, you know, utterly depraved. He said this last with a frightful expression and raised his ha right hand with the fingers formed into a ring. Aziz Christian, said the Frau Consul, that does not interest us in the least. But Christian's gaze flickered absently over her head. He would probably have stopped without her suggestion, for he seemed to be sunk in a profound, disquieting dream of Maria and her depravity. While his little round, deep eyes wandered back and forth, suddenly he said, Strange. Sometimes I can't swallow. Oh, it's no joke. I find it very serious. It enters my head that perhaps I can't swallow, and then of all of a sudden I can't. The food is already swallowed, but the muscles right here, they simply refuse. It isn't a question of willpower, or rather, the thing is, I don't dare really will it. Tony cried out, quite beside herself, Christian, good lord, what nonsense. You don't dare to make up your mind to swallow. What are you talking about? You are absurd. Thomas was silent, but the Frau Consul said, That is nerves, Christian. Yes, it was high time you came home. The climate over there would have killed you in the end. After the meal, Christian sat down in the little harmonium that stood in the dining room and imitated a piano virtuoso. He pretended to toss back his hair, rubbed his hands, and looked around the room. Then, without a sound, without touching the bellows, for he could not play in the least, and was entirely unmusical, like all the Buttonbrooks, he bent quite over and began to belabor the bass, played unbelievable passages, threw himself back, looked in ecstasy at the ceiling, and banged the keyboard in a triumphant finale. Even Clara burst out laughing. The illusion was convincing, full of assurance and charlatanry and irresistible comicality of the burlesque eccentric English-American kind, so certain of its own effect that the result was not in the least unpleasant. I have gone a great deal to concerts, he said. I like to watch how the people behave with their instruments. It is really beautiful to be an artist. Then he began to play again, but broke off suddenly and became serious, as though a mask had fallen over his features. He got up, ran his hand through his scanty hair, moved away and stood silent, obviously fallen into a bad mood, with unquiet eyes and an expression as though he were listening to some kind of uncanny noise. Sometimes I find Christian a little strange, said Madame Grunlich to her brother, Thomas, one evening when they were alone. He talks so somehow, he goes so unnaturally into detail, seems to me, or what shall I say, he looks at things in such a strange way, don't you think so? Yes, said Tom. I understand what you mean very well, Tony. Christian is very incautious, undignified. It is difficult to express what I mean. Somet something is lacking in him. What people call equilibrium, mental poise. On the one hand, he does not know how to keep his countenance when other people make naive or tactless remarks. He does not understand how to cover it up, and he just loses his self-possession altogether. But the same thing happens when he begins to be garrulous himself. In the unpleasant way he has, and tells his most intimate thoughts. 
it gives one such an uncanny uncanny feeling. It is just the way people speak in a fever, isn't it? Self-control and personal reserve are both lacking in the same way. Oh, the thing is quite simple. Christian buries himself too much with himself, with what goes on in his own insides. Sometimes he has a regular mania for bringing out the deepest and the pettiest of these experiences, things a reasonable man does not trouble himself about or even want to know about, for the simple reason that he would not like to tell them to anyone else. There is such a lack of modesty and so much communicativeness. You see, Tony, anybody except Christian may say that he loves the theatre, but he would say it in a different tone, more en passant, more modestly in short. Christian says it in a tone that says it's is not my passion for the stage something very marvellous and interesting? He struggles, he behaves as if he were really wrestling to express something supremely delicate and difficult. I'll tell you, he went on after a pause, throwing his cigarette through the wrought iron lattice into the stove, I have thought a great deal about this curious and useless self-preoccupation, because I had once an inclination to it myself, but I observed that it made me unsteady, hair-brained and incapable and control equilibrium is at least for me the important thing there will always be men who are justified in this interest in themselves this detailed observation of their own emotions poets who can express with clarity and beauty their privileged inner life and thereby enrich the emotional world of other people but the likes of us are simple merchants my child our self-observations are decidedly inconsiderable we can sometimes go so far as to say that the sound of orchestra instruments gives us unspeakable pleasure and that we sometimes do not dare try to swallow but it would be much better to take it if we sat down and accomplished something as our fathers did before us yes tom you express my views exactly when i think of the airs those magenstroms put on oh heavens what truck mother doesn't like the words I use, but I find they are the only right ones. Do you suppose they think they are the only good family in town? I have to laugh, you know, I really do. Alrighty, there we go. Another chapter for you. Interesting, this description of Christian. I, I would love to put it into modern terms and see if there is a modern term for what they're trying to describe here. Or at least what your take on it was is. Let's all sit here and uh, diagnose young Thomas, shall we? All right, have your say on it over on the subreddit, and I will see you tomorrow.